What's up? My name is Matt Issa, here to bring you episode 7 of Blazing the Trail. On this episode, we'll be spotlighting Dirk Minsky, or as Dwayne Casey and the rest of the 2000 Mavs like to call him, Dirty Dirk. Please remember that the article I wrote on Dirk is also live as we speak, and you can find the link to that and parts 1 through 6 of this series in the description below or just by visiting basketballnews.com. On this episode, we have the defensive coordinator of the championship Mavs team, Detroit Pistons head coach, Dwayne Casey, and Dirk's former teammate and current Raptors assistant coach, Adrian Griffin. Again, please be sure to check out the article I wrote on Dirk, along with the insights I got from Coach Casey and Coach Griffin. It also has quotes from my interviews with Dirk's former teammate and Cavaliers associate head coach, Greg Buckner, and Dirk's one-on-one sparring partner, former Mavericks player, assistant, and broadcaster, Brad Davis. Anyway, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you turn to for podcast consumption. We have so many more great interviews with players and coaches coming up, and I just really don't want you to miss out. Next time, we have the Orlando Magic's first ever draft pick, Nick Anderson, on to tell us about your favorite Hooper's favorite Hooper, Penny Hardaway. So yeah, do the thing, subscribe, and stay tuned. Without further ado, I give you Blazing the Trail. Before you meet Dirk, well, you, before you officially start coaching him, you'd coach for about 30 years, I want to say. You coached the likes of Della Schrempf, uh, Sam Perkins, Kevin Garnett, all these like versatile forwards who could do like guard like things. But you'd never, I don't think you'd ever come across somebody like Dirk, who's basically like a seven footer, who's guard like. And just tell me about like how different that was and how much versatility it gives you guys as a coaching staff. Well, you know, I, I would say working with that look really helped, uh, you know, as far as understanding uh, Dirk's strengths and weaknesses and, and understand his ability to go out on the floor. And because and, uh, Dirk is, was very unique, like you were saying, Matt, he's, he was seven foot tall, could put the ball on the floor, uh, wasn't the quickest player in the world, but knew where he wanted to go and could get there because he was so efficient with the shooting. So, um, uh, but Detlef Simpson was the first person, you know, as far as that size that I've been around that could do all those things. And then Dirk. And it's ironic both of them were big Germans that uh, they could do that. And uh, I remember talking to Detlef about, who's a big skinny kid over there? And, uh, you know, Dallas said, oh, he's just a young German kid. I don't know if he's going to gonna be anything or not. And turn it out, you know, Dirk becomes a Hall of Famer. So, uh, but a guy like Dirk that could put the ball on the floor was unique. It was a weapon because around that time, Matt, a lot of teams, the three-point shot was just really, really becoming, you know, a weapon for big men, for five men, for four they can really stretch the floor like Dirk. And so he was a unicorn at that time as a basketball player. Uh, and just a, you know, just, just a unique type player, uh, that because you couldn't get to a shot. He's so long. And I think in Dirk's career, once he figured out no one could get to a shot, that's when it become lethal. And, and, uh, you know, and, and because there for a while, I think he felt, you know, felt like when he stressed out and got the one leg step back going, uh, it was a wrap. Mm-hmm. Now, Coach, real quick follow-up based off that. Did Dirk ever mention, like, watching Detlef as a kid, maybe, like, modeling his game after him a little bit? Yes. He, he you know, he mentioned the fact that, you know, he watched uh, Detlef uh, as a young player. And, and uh, you know, every, that was before Dirk. People don't remember Detlef was the man 
uh, in especially in Germany at that time, uh, in, in German areas. So uh, a lot of young German kids grew up watching Detlef, and he was a role model for for those guys because again, he was a big guy, you know, six ten, six whatever, and could could stretch the floor, put the ball on the floor. And I think when Detlef was, you might correct me if I'm wrong, when he was in Indiana, he was more of a three. Uh, and, but the time we got him in Seattle, he was he was more of a four and slowed down a little bit. But uh, he still could stretch the floor and get a lot like lot like uh, dirt could get his shot up and you couldn't get to it. Yeah, I think um, I think yeah, he was a three because they had the Davis twins. I'm pretty yes, sure. Yes, yes. And, well, they weren't twins, but I just call them. Right, I call right. them twins because. <laughs> now, coach, I gotta ask. So before you guys, you know, you, Coach Carlisle, and the rest of the group come in, Dirk was going through a little bit of a tough stretch in the playoffs. I think it was a little bit overblown, but he was struggling a little bit without Nash. But then when you guys get him, he becomes like one of the great playoff scorers of all time. What did you guys do as a coaching staff to put him in better positions to succeed? Well, one. Rick had an open mind as offensively. I think he opened it up. Uh, no disrespect to the coach before him. And I think Don Nelson had been doing the same thing. And, and Coach Johnson kind of, you know, maybe slowed it down a little bit. But uh, Rick kind of opened up the offense a little bit. Really, really uh, put Dirk in some positions that were really difficult to score, whether it was pin downs, you know, a smaller, big pin down. A different type of setting got him on the move going into his sweet spots instead of just uh, get you know being there stationary where he could possibly get muscled a little bit. So uh, Rick did a great job of moving him around and uh, you know giving him back screens into the weak side post up and uh, and then too the addition of, of Jason Kidd who on the court is a you know was a a superstar as far as his is at that time his middle approach. He was like a coach on the floor. Really helped Dirk out as far as uh, you know being being that guy doing doing the game. Uh, I think Jason on the court did a great job himself of orchestrating spacing, uh, which made it diff- even more difficult to double team Dirk or send extra help. Yeah, I was rewatching um that a game against I think it was the Heat, and I was it was interesting. I'm I remember Dirk was like in the corner, and I think you uh-huh. set him like a somebody set him a rip yeah. screen. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was uh, talking about the one that where he scored to to put us ahead, and I think it was game three in that series. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a pin down, and he curled instead of popping out, he curled into the basket and got a layup, which was a very effective play for us at that time. And, you know, when you get a pin down from a guard, if a small guard switches off on him, Dirk was so long and, and effective getting to the rim. And, you know, there's nothing that small guy could do, uh, you know, switching on to him on a pin down and curling it. Yeah, and, and the thing is, too, sometimes he would get the Steph Curry treatment where it's like two to the ball, it would come with him to the ball, and yes. then there would be an open shooter in the corner. No question. He he and Jason Terry had a two-man game that was beautiful to watch and see and just the reads they made. I have a simple pin down, a small or big pin down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, whether Jet would go back door. But the key to all that was Jason Kidd's passing. You know, I think he really set up Dirk and, and, and set that play up. And he had a great feel for where Dirk was rolling to. And, and all Dirk had to really do was catch and shoot him, which he was very good at. Now, coach, you know, not to to um, to sing your praises for you, but you are like considered by many a very great defensive coach. Um, LeBron James even credits you and your decision to kind of overload the paint and make him kick out as one of the reasons he struggled in the NBA finals. But how were you able to build a really good playoff defense around somebody like Dirk, who's just not known for his defense? Well, you know, we. You know, as staff and, you know, myself, we, we had to, you know, be creative as far as how we used Dirk. You know, we knew we couldn't switch with him. Uh, Dirk was an excellent defender 
uh, a team defender. And, you know, Dirk knew how to, how to use his length, uh, being seven foot, uh, being able to, understanding, okay, I might not be able to stay one on one, but if I gap you long, far enough or, or give you enough space to use my size, he was great at doing that. And again, like I said, he was seven foot. And I don't know what Dirk's length was, or, you know, his wingspan was, but, uh, he was hard to shoot over, uh, as an offensive player. And so that really gave him an advantage. So if he knew who the he was guarding, how much space he could give him, what we call gap, he knew how mm-hmm. far he could gap the offensive player, uh, and became a weapon with his left. And same thing in pick and rolls, he did an excellent job of what we call, you know, showing on the pick and roll and getting back to his man. Uh, so he, he mad, he knew what he, he couldn't do. Uh, but uh, he utilizes his size and length to his advantage on the defensive end, which really helped us. And it took us a little while to get that system down pat where, you know, he didn't get exposed on switches. Uh, even in the zone, teams tried to isolate him in our zone, but we had mechanisms built in that, you know, if they did try to go, you know, he had quick help behind him or, we would, you know, emergency corner, get him out, or, you know, that type of thing. So we had some things to, to help him, but Dirk was a master at, at using his size and length to his advantage, even though he didn't have great foot speed. Yeah, and, you know, I pretty much agree with your assessment on, like, the defensive scouting report of Dirk. So do you think, like, today people don't give him enough credit for, like, how solid of a defender he was? Right. I, I, again, I don't know what is you know, at that time you know, analytic, analytics probably weren't good to him mm-hmm. uh, as far as a team defender uh, and not understanding how not to get exposed. He's very underestimated with his his basketball I, defensive IQ of knowing what he could do and could do. Uh, we tried to make sure even in matchups we would you know try to you know put him in a position to succeed. Um, so a lot of that, you know, again, goes with Dirk's IQ on the court and how smart a player he was. Yeah. And like coach, I know, I'm sure you'll be the first to admit when you guys, when you were coaching, when you were a part of that team from like 2008, 2011, the spacing still wasn't like teams weren't fully maximizing the spacing yet. There was still a lot of those two like big lineups that teams were running a lot of post ups still. Do you think today? With like the less mobile big men we have, and all this like emphasis on exposing them in space, do you think it's still possible to build a defense like you guys did with Dirk? No question, I definitely could. You know, again with with the switching, the double switching, uh, and all the different mechanisms to try to help players stay. There's no question uh, he, he, you know, he could be a you could use him defensively. Um, and if he switched that and got on the perimeter and got stuck, you know, you could send the guy back and double team uh, from a guard and kick him out. So, because he's smart. And, you know, if, if he wasn't a smart basketball player, it would be difficult to do it. But he knew what he didn't know. Uh, and he knew when, when he could switch or when he got caught, how to, you know, gap the player just to contain him long enough to get help. So, uh, yes, he could be very effective, and, and then on top of all that, on the other end, he would really make you pay by if he was a five-man stretching the floor, or even at the four, stretching the floor with his great shooting ability uh, as a player. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's another thing I did. I didn't really notice much of during that era of basketball. They weren't pre-switching as much as we do today. When when did teams right. start doing that? And well, at that time, you know, we would do what we call bump, bump a guy out. Mm-hmm. Like if they were trying to run his man up into a uh, pick and roll, uh, you know, again, smart players around him. You had a guy like Jason Kidd, uh, Sean Marion around that would switch as that guy was going up and get uh, uh, get a better defender that would switch onto the ball. So. We were doing that, you know, in 2011 mm-hmm. with Dirk and, and other players. So, uh, but again, it takes smart players and 
I thought we had a very, very smart group uh, along with Dirk to, and knew what Dirk could do and couldn't do defensively, which, which eventually helped us helped us win. Yeah, from like I know I told you before we we really started this that I was watching that clinic you did in South Africa, and you mentioned that you guys had a very like conservative defensive game plan. You guys weren't trying to gamble, go for too many right. steals. Yeah, and, and you know that was the key too because again we had an older group. Uh, Jay Kidd was a little bit older and a little bit slower than than he was when he first came in the league, and so he knew what he couldn't do, and uh, but. Jay Kidd was, and again, Dirk and Sean Marion was a defensive genius. And so all those guys, and then on top of that, you had Tyson Chandler uh, behind everybody, behind Dirk, to be there to help um, and take any matchup that wasn't wasn't good. And so, you know, there were times we put Dirk on a five, a non-offensive threat uh, that was a five-man, and so we could hide him on that. So... Uh, a lot of different things to do to help him, but again, uh, Dirk was was so smart as a defender that you, that allowed you to do different things, and he could he could recognize because you know you can have the best game plan in the world, but if players out on the floor and that player that you're trying to do things with doesn't recognize the situation quick enough, it could get ugly quick. I remember yesterday when we were on the phone, you told me they called Dirk uh, dirty. When did uh, 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 that? That was kind of a, a term of endearment, <laughs> a slang that they, it wasn't anything to do with basketball. But like Jason Terry would call it dirty dirt, Jay mm-hmm. uh, Kidd would call it dirty dirt, and I really don't know why, but that's what they his nickname was was dirty dirt. I, I like it. It was probably because you know he just had such a like a nasty so, mid post so game. So. Yeah, mid-post game, turn around, one-legged. And it's funny, Matt, you see so many players today doing the one-leg step-back mm-hmm. that Dirk really perfected. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the – do you – because I know he developed it right around the time you were coaching him. Do you remember how that happened? Uh, he and Holger, his, mm-hmm. uh, his workout guy that he worked with every day, mm-hmm. uh, Holger was a master at all the – uh, plyometric, uh, different weightlifting. Uh, Dirk really didn't lift a lot of weights, but he did a lot of body weight type exercises and, you know, standing on one leg, standing on his head, standing, doing headstands and, you know, really striding the length of the court with his legs, doing all different things. And I think out of that, uh, he developed that one leg step back and it takes a lot of leg strength to do that. And, uh, he, you know, he did a great job of of really working on different unorthodox uh, moves on the court just through his work of, of, you know, striding across the free throw line and then stepping up and shooting the ball. Going mm-hmm. both ways, doing the long strides. He did some some of the damnedest, uh, you know, workout routines that ended up coming, you know, turning around being a weapon for him on the court. Yeah, no, I agree. He was he was incredible. He was I think what made him such a great postseason scorer is there was just so many different ways he could beat you. You take away this, you sit on that, he'll come at you with something else. It's like a just a seasoned boxer out there. Right, right. No question. Now, coach, uh, I'm about to let you go, but I'm curious, you know, you know, I'm from Michigan. I need to know how excited are you about this young Pistons group you got going? I'm excited. I'm very excited. You know, just the possibilities. I, mean, I do do know that of the growing pains that we're going to go through, the learning curve that you know Ivy and and uh, uh, Darren is going to go through as a big guy. But the talent is unbelievable. But you know, again, like everything else that I like, Dirk went through. You're not going to step on the floor and turn the world around. So I do understand that seen that before but one thing that we we've amassed is a lot of excellent young talent now now the the hard work starts as far as growing learning uh learning the nba uh, all the things you have to do to be a great player and i wish you could just throw them out on the floor and say you know wave a magic wand 
and uh, but uh, the talent is there, so that's really really exciting, Matt, to to have a group like this and, and re reshape our team in such a short period of time. With that, we haven't had a lot of success, which you're not going to do with first and second year players on the board. Uh, that's one reason why you know it's important for us to add some veteran pieces just to help bridge these guys to you know to get winning in our repertoire. And, uh, so that's 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 why it's important for us to get a guy like Alec Burke and, and uh, also Nerlens Noel to to you know help these guys grow. How, how excited are you about that uh, that Kate and Ivy duo? It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Again, like I said, Jaden's uh, going to have it'll be a learning curve just like it was the first half of the season with Kate. Uh, so, you know, just that growing. But one thing that Ivy has that, that, that really, that really uh, Jade doesn't have is speed. You know, the, the, the elite speed that, that uh, Ivy has is unbelievable. So now, like everything else, he's got to learn how to use it in the NBA and uh, when he gets in traffic and gets stuck. How do you get, how do you use the speed to get out? So, but uh, he, the good Lord blessed him with, with some of the best speed I've seen in a long time in the NBA. That that he did. He definitely he definitely spent a little bit longer with uh, his speed than he did on my speed. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Shortchanged me too with, with that type of speed. No, I, I doubt it. I doubt he could keep up with you. Yeah, no, I, one thing I was I was quick when I was about 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. But that's you know the time is undefeated. That that it is, Coach. But um, I really, Coach, you don't know how much this means to me. Um, okay. it was it was a pleasure. Uh, thank you so no much. Problem, but to start to kind of give me just to set up things. Can you kind of like summarize super quickly your two stints with the Mavericks, kind of your role in those teams, the things that really, really stand out in your memory? Uh, yeah. So I was there, I believe, 2002 and 2003. Mm-hmm. And my role primarily was, you know, a plug guy, the defensive guy. I always, um, got the, you know, it's toughest assignment as far as the defensive assignment. So I would guard the primary score on the uh, opposing team. And uh, we had a really good team. You know, I remember some of the guys on that 0203, you know, Dirk, Steve Nash, mm-hmm. Michael Finley, uh, Sean Bradley, Rachel France, uh, Walt Williams. Greg Buckner. So we, I mean, we had a really, really good team. We probably would have won a championship if Dirk didn't get hurt in the Western Conference Finals in 03, I believe. 02, 03, something like that. Uh, we were up four games to, I'm sorry, three games to two against San Antonio. Dirk got hurt and we lost to the next two games. But, um, you know, he, it was certainly a privilege. Yeah. And then, and then 06, mm-hmm. we went to the uh, finals and, uh, Dirk was phenomenal. And unfortunately, you know, uh, he fell, fell short. It's kind of one of those things you always regret. Wish you could have performed better. Could have helped Dirk out a little bit more, but I was happy to see him. Win. I think it was what, 010 or 11, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. 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 And the interesting thing is when you you play, obviously, it's not that much time that goes by between 03 and 06, but there's like, it's two different teams stylistically. The first time around you're there, it's, you know, the Nelly Ball running gun, Michael right. Finley, Steve Nash, Dirk, super offensive oriented. You're like one of the few like defensive oriented players on that team. And then in 06, it's Avery Johnson, Dirk's all alone. And it's more of a kind of a traditional defensive team with Dirk as that their offensive focal point. What were the, the key differences between those two those two versions of the team around Dirk? Uh, I think I think you uh, nailed it. Um, 
one was more defensive minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Nelly was more offensive minded. <laughs> I think we rarely worked on uh, any defensive schemes or defense during practice. It was mainly, you know, Nelly's philosophy was to outscore them and also uh, make them adjust to us. Uh, he, that was his philosophy of making teams adjust. Mm-hmm. So we used to move Dirk around on the four and the five, and uh, we'd go small a lot uh, with Dirk as the center. And it was tough for teams to really uh, stop us because, you know, we had Steve Nash, we had Michael Finley on the other side, and we had some really great offensive uh, players. So, uh, but it was it was effective, you know. Like I said, I I, I think we would have won if uh, if, if uh, Dirk didn't get hurt. We uh, we would have won the championship. So you know, it's all about styles and philosophies, and uh, just double down on your strengths. And I thought you know we had a great offensive team, and unfortunately, you know, injuries are a part of the game, so it uh, really hurt us there. And then with Avery, uh, you know, he's coming from the kind of San Antonio tree and, uh, probably a lot more discipline on the defensive end and holding guys accountable. And, you know, guarding was a priority. And we have probably a more disciplined style of play, but still, uh, ran our offense through, uh, you know, Dirk and, and Jason Terry. Mm-hmm. Jet, the Jet. Yeah, I mean, he was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Very, probably the most underrated player in NBA history. Uh, he, he, he could score like no other, you know. Uh, elite shooter, could create space, get a shot off. Uh, whenever we need a bucket, you know, he was right up there with Dirk as far as, uh, putting the team on his back and, and willing us to a victory. Yeah, he's a. I love the the two man actions that him and Dirk had going with each other. That little synergy they had together. Now, of course, you know most seven feet people they stand out. They're they're sight for sore eyes. What was like? What are your initial? What, what do you recall your initial impressions were of of Dirk when you saw him? What really stood out about him and his game? Well, one he was you know seven feet mm-hmm. and. It was impossible to block the shot. No one can get to a shot, you know. Not only did he have the height as an advantage, but his release, he got a high release on top of that. So it was very difficult to alter a shot. And, you know, his work ethic was so inspiring. You know, every day he's in the gym, uh, you know, you play 35, 40 minutes. A night, never took days off, always working on his craft. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't talk much, uh, but his actions, uh, spoke volumes, especially his work ethic. And then his confidence grew, I believe, from the first time I played with him, he was very good. And then the second time I played with him, he knew he was one of the greatest. Mm-hmm. So I think his mindset set shifted to a much higher level. And you can see the confidence exude um, out of him. And it really um, trickled down to everyone else because we knew having Dirk on our team, we were never out of a game. And uh, it just gave our whole team the confidence that we needed to compete at a high level. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now, so you mentioned something about the the work ethic, the training. I've heard you talk before on on different podcasts about how you say like Ray Allen had a really intense uh, pregame ritual, and of course Dirk, he's you know famous for his relationship with. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess his name up a little bit. I'm not the best at pronunciations, but but Holger Yishfinger. And yes. Yes. And um, can you just tell me a little bit because you're you know you're an assistant coach. You know you know the vibes of like the different coaches in the league. What what their relationships are like with players and stuff. But tell me how different their kind of relationship was. How different their training was. Because Holger is just such an interesting like figure in this whole story. Well, it was it was a 
used to be the unorthodox at the time. Now you see trainers uh, doing kind of out-of-the-box type of uh, uh, performance training for players. Um, back then, you know, it was very, you know, everyone kind of trained the same, very basic. You know, you get your shots up, your spot shooting, and, you know, whatever uh, routine you had, you, you just stuck to it. Um, Dirk and his trainer were doing, you know, all the balance stuff, uh, one leg jump shots, uh, twists and turns and bends and, you know, touch, uh, you know, squats into jump shots and, you know, uh, left hand, right hand, you know, they, they really mixed it up. And so that wasn't the norm at the time. So, you know, you just, just sit back and just watch Dirk go to work, you know, and, it just wasn't the training with him, but it was also with, like, he and Brad Davis played one-on-one every day. And that was part of Dirk's philosophy as far as training, um, just to play one-on-one and mm-hmm. get those bets. You know, I mm-hmm. thought that was so unique at the time. And now, you know, uh, you see trainers, you know, uh, even the entire league, now we have – you know, 12 or 15, 20 coaches and uh, a lot of player development is getting hiring younger coaches who can move on the floor and defend and uh, the players get it's like sparring, you know mm-hmm. and, but Dirk was ahead of his time as far as that on what the Mavericks, you know, I don't know what every team was doing but as far as at that time in the early 2000s, you know, it wasn't as common as having a lot of coaches and on the floor and, and guarding you. So Dirk understood the importance of staying sharp and keeping his game tight. So him and Brad would play one-on-one every day um, before the games, play one-on-one. So he just didn't put up shots, but he was getting game reps. So by the time the game would come around, you know, he was already, he already had his timing and, and, and it showed. So it, I think it was a combination of his training from Germany and, and uh, the kind of the one-on-one work he did with uh, Brad Davis that really was instrumental in, in Dirk's uh, improvement over the years. Yeah. There, there's a lot of interesting stuff you just said there that I really want to dive into. But I don't mean to put you on the spot, Coach. Have you no, have you had a chance no. to read the, the new um, – the translated version of that German biography that came out about Dirk. Uh, no, I have not. Yeah. Well, so it's like, it's so interesting because they talk about him and Holger's like unique way. Like for example, as they would be shooting around, Holger would start yelling like situations out to Dirk, like in the games, like, Oh, you have like two minutes left down by five. What are you going to do? And Dirk would have to repeat it as he was shooting those jumpers. And you talk about like how he would put himself constantly in those situations with Brad Davis and it just, it's all like, it all makes sense now where it's like this sort of, um, this me- this situational training and you can see it in Dirk's, like, I don't want to get too ahead of myself because I want to talk about this in a second, the mid post game, you know, that Dirk developed with all the counters and the, the spin moves and the up and unders. And of course that one legged fadeaway, but it's all, it all makes pretty good sense. Just hearing you talk about that. Yeah. you I mean, you're 100% right. Uh, they, they worked on a lot of situational game situational um moves and and uh sequences and um you know you it's popular in sports psychology of you know the visualization mm-hmm. of putting yourself in mm-hmm. that situation so that you're comfortable when it comes you you know your mind is already has experience being in that situation so it knows how to perform and to recall those movements that you need. Um, so it's not, you know, your first time experiencing that. So, you know, from a sports psychology perspective, they were probably ahead of the game as, as far as doing it on a consistent basis. Um, and now, you know, now training is really advanced. Uh, a lot of coaches are taking a lot of those concepts that they were doing 20 years ago and incorporating that into the training now. Um, but, you know, it worked for Dirk, you know, and he was committed to it. 
uh, like I said, they, they did a lot of unorthodox stuff uh, as far as, um, you know, that's to me, that's real player development. It's not just your physical skills, but just your, it's your mental skills. Mm-hmm. And now a lot of teams are hiring mental skills coaches. You know, they've kind of gotten away from using the term sports psychology because of some of the negative connotations to it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of players felt like, it's you know you're saying you have a problem when you work with a sports psychologist so they're just trying to change that whole feel of you know this is mental skills developing your mind but you know Dirk was on to something and, and it showed on the floor you know he was never rattled he was always calm cool and collective like I said he didn't talk much but you could always count on him in, in the, the big moments of the game uh, he was never flustered uh, I believe a lot of that is credited to all the work that he did with his trainer and uh, and, and again for, with, with Brad I think uh, he would take the things he were learning and then uh, he would transfer that over to the kind of the one-on-one setting with Brad so he had a, uh, had the perfect combination of working on his physical skills and his mental skills yeah no I 100% agree now Entertain me for a second here, Coach. Um, I've, I've pinpointed three kind of chapters in Dirk's prime that kind of describe the progression of his career. You were a part of two of them. Um, yes. So the first chapter is that we talked about with Steve Nash, Michael Finley, where he's primarily off ball. He's, you know, what you call today a play finisher on like pick and pops or you guys would run him off pin downs, wide pin downs, um, all that stuff. Can you tell me how – what was it about Dirk that allowed him to be this kind of off-ball weapon in a way we didn't really see from seven-footers? Well, I think, you know, he was unique at the time. I remember when I was playing with the Celtics mm-hmm. when we played Dallas. I've never heard of Dirk Nowinski at the time. You know, he was in his first, second year in the league, and um, he was behind the three-point line, and he was – you know, he made one three, and then he made another, and Rick Pitino kind of cussed me out and said, you know, what are you doing? You got to guard him. You know, that's his strength. But at the time, you know, it wasn't common for seven-footers to be on the perimeter. This is kind of still the end of the traditional three-out, two-in NBA. Um, you know, you have the power forward and the center, and the power forward mainly, you know, was a post-up guy try to get mismatches, you know, double them in the post and whatnot. But Dirk was one of the first to to kind of uh, initiate that uh, stretch forward, stretch center. And, you know, I played with Antoine Walker. He yeah. was a stretch forward as well. Pull up so three-point shooter. Yeah, three-point shooter. But Dirk kind of took it to another level because of his size. And, you know, I didn't guard him because I didn't know that seven footers could shoot threes and so that was the first time I was introduced to Dirk and then you know playing with him to me was the first phase which was for me because I didn't know him that well but when I got to know him and play with him you know teams started to scout him and the, you know the game plan with Dirk and this was like the first time that I played with him in 02 and 03. Mm-hmm. The plan was to be physical with him and rough him up. And at the time, he was still early in his career, so he didn't have the physical stamina to stand up to all the physicality. And he, he kind of got the best of him at times. But you could tell when I played with him in 06, you know, he, he, was, he grew into his body. And his perspective and his mind changed. You know, he he became ripped. He became mean and nasty like a rattlesnake. You know, he had that look in his eye where he knew he was the best player when he stepped on the floor, and that he was going to be the one dishing out the 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 punishment. He was going to be the player that pumped fear in other opponents. So that was the biggest change that I saw from the first time that I played with him. And then you have to also factor in when I played with him the first time. We had uh, Steve Nash, we had Michael Finley, and Dirk and Whiskey all on one team. And it used to be 
you know, it was so perplexing that, you know, neither one of them, they had such great respect for each other that neither one of them wanted to hog the ball. Neither one of them wanted to kind of take that last shot. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of looking at each other like, who should take the shot? Well, you take it. You know, I'll, I'll take the, the next one, you know. But in 06, you know, we knew where who was going to take that last shot. You know, we knew who demanded and commanded the ball. So it was more Dirk's team in 06 as far as old two and oh three where Dirk and Steve and, and Finley were kind of all they were all on the same level at that time so um but in 06 we all knew whose team it was yeah and it, you you did a perfect job of transitioning us to that next part so like from 05 to 07 I would say right after right after Nash and Finn leave it's it's like you said it's pretty much Dirk's team and Dirk takes on more of that initiator role he's more of like a kind of how you'd remember like carl malone like working methodically in the post obviously a little bit different style dirk was more of a finesse than a power puncher like carl malone but and while i would say that the critics criticisms are overblown he did at times struggle against those more athletic forwards you know think about that 05 rocket series against McGrady or in 06 when they famously put like Udonis Haslam on Dirk or in 07 when, you know, the Nelly ball, we believe Warriors were able to give him some fits. What did you what did you see there from those teams, especially that 06 series against the Heat where they were able to annoy him just a little bit? And just how much how much of a toll did that take on Dirk? Well, you know, she uh I felt that he was phenomenal, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you get into a playoff series, you know, they game plan, you know, and they felt like they, they you know, you get a guy like Haslam where you just say, don't leave this guy, you know, and they worked for them, you know. Uh, they did a good job of, of sending bodies up. Yeah, they they did a really good job of, of honing in on him and trying to stop him. And like I said, you know, they put Haslam on him and just basically told Haslam to be physical with him and don't leave him. Um, you know, like I said, in the seven-game series, you know, you can game plan. And we came out and threw the front first punch. And when they threw their punch, we just couldn't recover. You know, and that happens, you know, a team gets momentum and they start to believe and we started to falter a little bit and, uh, you know, unfortunately we, we had to, to, to live with the results of that. Mm-hmm. And so then that takes us, I know that at this point you're not, you're no longer his, his teammate. I think actually at this point you're probably, you start your coaching career in 2008, but from 2008 to 2011, 2012, Dirk starts to, changes diet he adds even more strength to his frame and he becomes what i believe is one of the you know four five six greatest postseason scorers ever like that's how how dominant he became i know you weren't directly involved so you probably weren't um paying attention as much but what did you see if looking from afar where like that change where he finally reached his kind of full form per se and where he became truly unstoppable well when you know, when talent decides to work, there's not much you can do about it. You know, there's a saying that, like a lot of people say, it's that hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work. But I always say after that, but when talent decides to work, there's not a damn thing you can do, you know. Um, they, they start to figure out, you know, the, the Kobe's and, you know, guys like that. They have the physical ability, but when they master skill and they master their skill, there's not much you can do, you know, and, and Dirk figured it out, you know, he, he, he wanted to get better, he had the desire to get better, uh, and, and he had the, the talent to get better. You know, a lot of players, you know, they have the skill, but they don't have the will. And then they, there's a lot of players that have the will, like myself, but just don't have the skill and the talent to, mm-hmm. on, on that level, you know, to, to dominate and so 
you know, Dirk wanted to be the one of the best ever, and he was willing to do whatever it took. And for him, you know, it was it was to, to you know change his body. He got stronger. I read, you know, I, I still kept my ear to the ground, so to speak. You know, I heard how him and Steve Nash, you know, they remained great friends, but they were they both, you know, I know Steve started to look at, you know, look into his diet and vegan and all this, and Dirk started to really change his diet, and uh, that's what the great ones do, you know. It's, it's a game of inches, and you have to always say you have to put as many things in your favor, and I thought that's what Dirk did, you know, from off the court to on the court to diet to sleep, um, mental, mentally, physically, you know, he 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 did what it took uh, to be. He was willing to pay the price, you know. I, I talk to my kids all the time mm-hmm. about the price to pay, and. And I think that, you know, when you lose like we did in 06, it's okay as long as you learn from, learn from it. You know, you learn from those lessons. And you could tell that Dirk was determined in those finals. Or was it 2010? 2011. 2011. I mean, you could tell that he, his growth, you know, that he grew surrounded to another level mm-hmm. and uh, you can see it in his eye you know as a uh, opponent you you could look at a the guy lying across you and you could see in, it, in their eyes that they won't be denied and I thought that's what I saw from Dirk that he was not going to be denied this time around and, and you saw how dominant he was in that series Against the very that was the Heat team, right? Yeah, the first year of the Super Team Heatles. Right. Yeah. No, I I hundred percent agree with you, Coach. Now I want to ask, you know, fast forward all the way to today's NBA game, and of course, it's no secret that Dirk has left a huge mark on today's NBA. You know, just for instance, Kevin Durant's on the record as saying he's you know literally taken Dirk's one-legged step back fade away. He's not the only one. Kobe Bryant, Carmelo Anthony, all those guys, all the great scorers have kind of used that now added that to their bag. What players in today's game remind you the most of Dirk offensively? Well, the first one that comes to mind would be Kevin Durant, mm-hmm. just because of his size, his ability to create space. I mean, if you recall, Dirk didn't need a lot of room to operate. You know, if he was on the elbows, you know, he, he utilized as few dribbles as possible, one or two dribbles, and he can get a shot off. And we watch Durant, he doesn't use a lot of dribble moves, you know. He can just create a space, elevate, or, again, you know, talk about guys that are on the 17. And, you know, offense is all, all about creating space. And that's what Dirk mastered, mastered the ability to create space. And so he would use the one-legged fadeaway, Jump shot, which is, your shot was already impossible to stop, mm-hmm. but once you added that element, I mean, you could just forget it, man. It's all about being a master of your path, You know, I, I guarded Kobe Bryant many, many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the same, you know, just operated in a small, uh, circumference, um, had all the tricks like dirt, shot face, you know, um, and they had the ability to get to the free throw line. That's that's kind of the biggest um, indicator of your dominance because when you get into the, the playoffs and the finals, it's all about the free throws. You know, it's all about how can you get an easy bucket when your team needs to. How can you get to the free throw line and stop the bleeding? How can you put pressure on the defense? And you know, Dirk with all his moves and his you know high basketball IQ. Again, he figured it out, you know, and that's credit to him and his hard work is when it starts to click and now you're, you're the, the master and everybody else is, is at your will. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great, I mean, people forget like, you know, the three point shot, very efficient shot, layups, very efficient shot, but the most efficient shot in basketball at the end of the day is that free throw shot. Because if you're a good free throw shooter, 
that's a 90% two-point shot. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, I just want to close this out. Just a really a couple fun questions for you, Coach. What's your What's your favorite Dirk Nowitzki memory? Favorite Dirk Nowitzki memory? You know, my favorite Dirk Nowitzki memory is not even on the court. Mm-hmm. It's uh, one day him and Steve Nash, they came to practice and they both had a guitar. <laughs> and they were teaching themselves how to play the guitar. You know, and they were just having so much fun. They just kind of showed the human side of Dirk. I mean, he's just a, such a great teammate, you know. Never berated his teammates. He always made me feel a part of the team, even though I was nowhere near his level. Uh, but he always made me feel a part of what we were trying to build. And he knew he needed his teammates. He knew that he needed them at a high level, feeling good about themselves and feeling good about each other. So I think the biggest memories for me, and I always tell people that Dirk was the greatest teammate that I played with, not just the greatest player, but he was a phenomenal teammate. You know, always was in a great mood. Very rarely did you find him in a bad mood. You know, always, uh, you know, smiling, laughing, having a good time. But when the lights came on, uh, he, he put his gang face on. He was locked in, he was focused, but he never tried to tear his, his teammates down. He always tried to build them up. Mm-hmm. No, that that's awesome. I love that. The the guitar thing. That's pretty that's pretty funny. Coach, you know I have to ask about him. He's one of everyone's favorite players in the league. And we, we talked about him um during the Andre Kirilenko episode of this series, because I think he reminds me a lot of Andre Kirilenko, but how excited are you about Scotty Barnes' potential? Oh, well, Scotty, man, he's, he's has a chance to be one of the greats, one of the special players in the league. Um, so young, so talented, uh, has still a, um, a high ceiling to reach, and you can just see it growth in one year. You know, uh, just his versatility. I think sticks out his ability to play multiple positions and his ability to guard one to five really stand, uh, you know, stands him out um, from the crowd. And another guy who just has a unique personality, you know, this kid, mm-hmm. the time he comes into the gym, you know, he has to hug everyone. You know, he's a hugger. Uh, he's very affectionate with his teammates. Um, he has that uh, special, you know, unique personality that binds everyone together. You know, he's always in a great mood, always excited about the game of basketball. And I think um, his competitive spirit is like no other, especially for a young player. You know, we were just in L.A. in our workouts at UCLA with the Rico Hyde runs. And he's picking up Paul George full court. You know, uh, Harden was there. James Harden was there a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. They let me guard him. He's uh, Harden up full court, turn him in the backcourt, just playing exceptional defense and pickup games. So it's, it's tough to find players that young that don't care about being embarrassed. All they want to do is just win and compete at a high level and do the things that are necessary to win. I think he, his IQ as far as understanding that, you know, it takes being great on both ends of the floor. He doesn't just work on his offensive game, but he's he takes all the toughest assignments, and he tells the coach, I want this guy. You know, I want him. I'm guarding him tonight. Oh, we're playing so so I'm shutting him down. Uh, you very rarely hear, you know, most of the time you hear the player say, oh, man, I'm going to get 30 on him. Uh, I'm a score. I'm a give, you know, but he's he's like taking a defensive approach, saying, "Man, I'm a, I'm a set him down." So having that type of of leader at, to be so young in Scotty Barnes is definitely a treat as a coach because you get to coach the team through him. You know, one of your best players is so disciplined and hungry on the defensive end. You know, it it it, it holds all the other guys accountable. 
And it's easier for us to coach the other guys because we got guys on our team like Fred Van Fleet, Scotty Barnes, you know, that uh, are defensive-minded guys. And so it makes our job much, that much easier as coaches. Mm, no, that, that's awesome. But I, I'm just curious, did you like the Andre Karolinko comparison? Do you think that one's close? Uh, At least defensively. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm not just saying this, but I think Scotty's more overall better talent. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I think he can play the point guard. Um, and again, he can guard one to five. And I'm not taking anything away from Paralegal. But Sonia, I've guarded him many times. He, he was definitely a tough matchup. Uh, very long, athletic, high IQ. But I think there's something special about Scotty Barnes, you know. Uh, his drive and his competitive spirit and separates him. But uh, Karolinko was definitely, you know, that's a good comparison. I think uh, Scotty, you know, he has a bit of that Magic Johnson in him where he can impact the game in many different facets. You know, he's an exceptional passer. He can rebound. He can push it. He's a playmaker and gets some teammates involved. And the league better watch out because he's getting better every day uh, with perimeter uh, shot. Um, one of the best finishers that I've seen, especially at his age, his body control, uh, finishing through contact. So, yeah, Scotty, Scotty Barnes is, man, he's the real deal. And, uh, it's going to be fun watching him grow and develop over the next three or four years. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited too. And just one more guy I'm super excited about. I hear, I don't follow the, the pre-NBA guys as much, not until they get to the NBA. But I hear your son is going to be a very, very good basketball player. Are you excited for him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's just one of those things where as a parent, you know, you're just excited for your kids whenever they reach one of their goals, you know. And, uh, you know, AJ has always been, a fanatic for the game of basketball since he was two years old. You couldn't keep a ball out of his hands. I remember I was, I was with the Bulls and, you know, I'm working long hours and I would come home and uh, both of the boys would say that they want to go to the gym and work out and I would get to the gym, just get home and I would be a little tired, you know, just from the travel and the practices and whatnot. And AJ would be at the door, man. You know, he would already... He's, He'd hear my car pull up and he'd be at the door with his backpack, um, his sneakers on. And he was, he would beg me. I mean, literally beg me to go back to the gym. And I'll always tell him, like, give me 30 minutes to recoup. And we all hit the gym, you know, Alan and Aubrey and Vanessa, all four of the kids. We just head back to the gym and spend the rest of the evening. And I couldn't get them off the court, you know, it would be 11, 12 o'clock at night sometime. And there would be school night, and I, he would cry, literally cry every time. And then he and Alan would play one-on-one every day. And I, I used to dread it because it always ended in a fight, you know. Because day felt like he could he, – he really believed in his mind that he should be beating Alan, dominating Alan. Yeah. But Alan was three years older, and Alan was a good athlete himself. You know, he was tall and athletic and – you know, you know, three years as far as in, in, in adolescence, that's a that's, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's like dog years, you know. And uh, AJ really believed that he should be beating his brother, and when he did, man, he would throw the biggest fit. I mean, he would cry all the way home, and but that never deterred him. You know, he, the next day they'd be in the gym going at it again. But I think that's why AJ developed uh, to a really good ball player because. Just that one-on-ones with his brother every day growing up, he just wanted to beat him so bad. So that that really drove AJ to put in the work. You know, when we would go through the drills, he would, man, he would be locked in and focused. He, he wasn't there to play around, man. He was really locked in. He would listen to every word that I said, and then he would go 100 miles per hour uh, on the floor. So nothing surprised me. You know, the 
that he's turned out to be a really good ball player. And I, I think he's in great hands in Atlanta. I think he's going to have a, a established career. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there, Coach. Um, I really, I really appreciate all this, Coach. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of yours. You were making fun of yourself a couple times about your game. You were saying you weren't that that great of a player, but your story is incredible. Your journey to the NBA, and then you were you were always one of those guys, man, who in today's game you do really well because you're the high IQ guy who reads and reacts really quickly, and you're you're a versatile defender. And now you're you're one of the premier, in my mind, premier assistant coaches in the league. So, yeah, I coach, coach, I just really appreciate your time and. Yeah, this was awesome. Uh, Thank you, man. It was fun. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Blazing the Trail. If you enjoyed this, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. It goes a long way towards raising awareness for this series. Hey, I don't make the rules here. Just the podcasts. Also, be sure to download the Basketball News app for notifications when new articles and podcast episodes come out. From me and all my other wonderful coworkers at Basketball News. That about does it for me. I'll see you guys next time for the Penny Hardaway episode. But in the meantime, be safe and have an awesome day.